Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when you when the council of the elders laid their hands on you, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author John Piper once wrote, A pastor's unflagging moral vigilance over his life and unwavering theological vigilance over his doctrine are the means of grace appointed by God for his own salvation and the salvation of his people. If there is a truth that we at First Baptist Church continually stand firm on and affirm and repeat often, it is the truth that you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the truth that you will hear us continually proclaim. You were saved by grace through faith in Christ and nothing else. You can add nothing to your salvation, not your own efforts, not your sincerity, not even by your religious rites and rituals. You are saved through faith. This is the truth that Paul has proclaimed in the book of the Ephesians. He, he wrote this to the Ephesian church long before his arrest and long before the church in Ephesus began to slide off of its theological foundation and long before Paul had to leave Timothy in that city to set the church right. In fact, he wrote to them these words. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul says at one point you were spiritually dead and you were completely cut off from God. That is the bad news of the the gospel. But then the good news is, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
And then he gets to the point, he says, for, in light of this, because of this, by grace, you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. That is the truth of the gospel that we preach. That is the truth of the gospel that we stand on, that salvation is of God, and that salvation is not from what we can do for God, but what God has already done for us through Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. That is it. And as long as I'm the pastor here, that'll be the truth that we stand on. That is the truth we will believe. And that is the truth of the foundation of our fellowship together. That is what makes us brothers and sisters in Christ, is our common faith in that. But then we come face to face with the text that we have before us. And a text that Paul wrote to Timothy in the very same city of Ephesus. And Paul writes to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching and persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul says, keep a close watch on your behavior and how you live. Keep a close watch on what you teach and the doctrines you preach. And by doing this, you will save yourself and those who listen to you. That's what the text says. Is Paul saying to Timothy that now somehow he must earn his salvation by what he does as a pastor? Is he saying Timothy must do something in order to merit his salvation in contrast to what Paul had written in Ephesians chapter 2? Well, the reality is there are people who will look at this text and they will say, well, yeah, that's what it says. That's what Paul means. That's what he's teaching. Now, we know as Christians, if you were a Christian, we know for a fact this, is, this can't be true. This cannot be what he's actually teaching. There must be something more because the entire New Testament, right, doesn't even begin to approach that direction. It speaks against self-righteousness. It, it speaks against works-based righteousness. I mean, just read the letter to Ephesians, read the letter to Romans, read the letter to Galatians, read the Gospel of John, read the entire New Testament, and you will see it speaks against us having anything to do with our own salvation as far as earning it. But again, Paul in this very city, as he told them before, he says, for by grace that you have been saved, through faith. It's not your own doing, it's a gift of God, not the result of your works. So we find in ourselves facing a difficult passage of Scripture. And what this text reveals for us, as much as many people want to ignore this fact, is that we find ourselves facing a text that must be read and understood in its full context. Otherwise, you just pluck it out and make it say what you want it to say. Now, there are so many people that get really frustrated with this. There are people, especially in our Western culture and the way that we think in our individualistic world, that thinks, you know what? I just read the text and it says this and so it means that. And, and the problem is, is if we lose sight of the context, we can make the Bible say all kinds of things that are contradictory and heretical. The text must be read in its context. And once we walk through the context, and once we walk through the text itself, Paul's point will actually become quite clear, and that it's not about Timothy saving himself by his own actions in contrast to what we know from the gospel. 
Number two, this text also helps us to see the value of studying the original languages, which, by the way, is Greek. Right? The thing that we need to remember is the Bible was not written in English. Right? We love our English Bibles and our English translations, but the Bible was never written originally in Greek. It was translated into English. And, and even the King James Version is not some re-inspired, godly interpretation of the original Greek. The original text that we lean on ultimately is the Greek text. And the thing that we need to understand is the Greek language itself is much more expressive and much more nuanced than its English counterpart. Right? There are just some things that take more work than just a couple of words to express which means we need to be able to look deeper into the original text and to help unpack what the text is actually saying, which then leads to number three. The thing I'd like to point out is the truth that the text both overtly and implicitly validates the value and importance of qualified men who diligently study the text in order to understand it and faithfully proclaim it. Right? There are people who simply want to believe that they can grow to the fullest maturity as a Christian by just grabbing a Bible, sitting on a desert island, and reading it by themselves, and they can grow somehow to the maturity that God's calling them to. And the simple fact, it's not how it is. We are called to grow in our faith together in a community, which is the church. In fact, this text ultimately, in the words of John Piper, is about the extraordinary seriousness of pastoral ministry which the reality is, is today you're going to be more spectators while you see me squirm under the conviction of the Word of God. In fact, this text is just that. It's about the seriousness of pastoral ministry, which, by the way, is why we are in 1 Timothy to begin with. Because when we survey the landscape around us, when we look at our country, we see that our nation continues to turn further and further away from God. I mean, 15 years ago, that was evident, but today we stand in a place where we just are aghast by how quickly people are turning away from the God that they once professed. This new generation has created more unbelievers than we've ever seen. In fact, we're at a tipping point in our history. We see that more and more people are explicitly disrespecting Christians. More and more people are disrespecting God's Word and the Christian faith itself. In fact, one of the most hated groups of people in our country today are simply those who legitimately follow Jesus Christ. Those who actually believe what the Bible teaches are the most lampooned and the most despised group of people in our country today. You don't have to look very far to, to validate this. You just look at the news, look at social media. Bigotry and persecution against Christians in the Western world is on the rise. And it's not just for third world countries anymore. In fact, in Canada, pastors have been arrested for holding Sunday morning services during the lockdown. And, and you know, people say, well, they were just being dis disobedient. Well, pastors have been, for the last several years, being arrested for preaching publicly, especially when they preach on subjects that are unpopular and make people upset. They are hauled off to jail. Not to mention, and you won't, and what's strange to me is this is not in the news. You have to actually go to to international news sources is this, is did you know that 21, 21 churches in Canada have been torched and burned to the ground in the first seven months of this year alone? 21, and, and they're not accidents, they are arson. People are targeting churches. This kind of hatred towards the church is permeated 
even our own country. And more people see the Christian faith as the foundation of racism. You see it more and more. People are in the discussions on social media saying Christianity is just basically white supremacy. That's all that it is. That's what people are, are, are promoting. And people are beginning to call the government to then now turn on the, on the church and begin to tax the, the church at a high rate. All right? and, and there is a surprising number of people who want to overturn the First Amendment with regard to religion and even the freedom of speech. Now, many people look at this and they blame the world for the growing disdain for the church. But hear me, that's like blaming the sun for coming up in the east and going down in the west. Really, blaming the world for its hatred of Christianity is like blaming the sun for coming up in the east and going down the west. Because guess what? That's just simply the way things are. The world hates Christians because that's what the world does. In fact, Jesus promised in his own world, you're going to be hated because they first hated me. The world is what the world is. The problem that we face in our country isn't so much what the world is or what the world does. It's actually the failure of the church to adequately teach the members of the church and their children the proper view of, of, of God and the church itself and the, and the church leadership. The church in America is theologically anemic, especially in the area of ecclesiology, which is the theology of the church. This is why so many pastors don't even like the label anymore of pastor or elder. They don't want to be called that. They prefer things like life coach. Right? Because that's how they see themselves, as people who simply are there to help people get more out of life rather than lead them to Christ. Paul Washer said, it didn't bother me that pastors want to call themselves life coach. At least they're calling themselves by their real name and not pastors anymore, right? They've abandoned the understanding of the seriousness of pastoral ministry, seeking to appeal to people rather to, than to the God that they serve. And, 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 and because, they're, because of that, right, they also then have taken the label of church and kind of like cast that into a dark place. And now they call churches or gatherings, they call them worship centers. That sounds less threatening to the common folk. Because in their mind, the church is a place where people can come, right, and be catered to, and to be waited on, and to be entertained by great music, and, and listen to impactful but very short, short motivational speeches. And many churches have long since given up on being the pillar and the buttress of the truth and instead have become a social club of non-confrontation. It's not about people feeling the tr hearing the truth, but helping people to feel better. In fact, many people will, with an air of superiority, will say pithy little things about the church, including the church is a hospital for the spiritually sick. And, and please understand, right? I understand where that sentiment comes from, and I certainly agree that an important function of the church is to be like Christ and to bring healing to the spiritually sick. So please don't misunderstand me in what I'm saying. I believe that in some sense we are to be a hospital for the sick and wounded, and we should lovingly give spiritual care. But hear me, that is not the church's primary mission. As some would have you believe. People say things like that to take the edge off what the church really is supposed to be. In fact, you will not find the church described in those terms anywhere in the Bible. The Bible does not say that the church is a hospital for the sick. 
It says the church belongs to the living God. It says that the church is God's family. It says that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. The church's primary mission is to defend and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ and the doctrines of the faith. And without that foundation, it doesn't matter how loving we are to other people. It doesn't matter how much we serve one another or what labels we will apply to ourselves. If we lose sight of what the church is supposed to be and what the church is supposed to do, we run the risk of fast becoming an irrelevant social club no matter what our intentions are, which is exactly what we see happening around us. Now hear me, please. Yes, the church is to be a hospital for the sick and the wounded. Right, But it's to be that because the church is the pillar and the buttress of the church, the, the truth. Because it is the gathering of God's people together to glorify and worship Him. It's because this is the center for discipleship. And, and it is because that this church, the church itself, is the, the engine that drives the Great Commission to spread the one thing that all of humanity needs more than anything else. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Without that, whatever hospital we might fancy ourselves to be really isn't much of anything. And for that, the church to exist, for that church to exist must be led by biblically qualified men who faithfully study and proclaim the Word of God. Now, I want you to hear me. I think it's perfectly fine to say that the church is a hospital for the sick as long as we understand what that, where that's coming from. Most people say that in a way to say, that means you better be super nice and never ever confront anybody in their sin. That's what most people say, mean by when they say that. But again, for that church to exist, it must be led by qualified, biblically qualified men who faithfully study and proclaim the word of God and pursue a life of godliness as an example for the church. And then, which is exactly what this text is about today, the seriousness of pastoral ministry and the seriousness of proclaiming the Word of God and pursuing and living a godly life as a minister of the gospel. If you remember last week, Paul explained to Timothy the way that he was to discourage the teaching, the false teaching in the church was two, two things, doctrines and deeds, right? Doctrines, teaching the truth, and deeds, living a godly life, pursuing godliness for his church to see. These are the two things that Timothy and every pastor is to focus on in order to keep the church theologically grounded and keep false teaching at bay, faithfully preaching the word and pursuing a godly life. This, by the way, is what sets up the pattern. This is the context that sets up the pattern for what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to see this pattern repeated again in the text. Paul will reinforce the idea of the importance of doctrines and deeds, teaching the word and living as an example for the church. Or in other words, he's telling Timothy, basically, talk the talk and walk the walk. Hence the title of the message, by the way. So again, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and let's just start approaching the text. Beginning in verse 11, Paul says this. He says, command and teach these things. This right here should remind us that Paul, of what he said in the last section, he, he said, if you put these things before 
the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. In other words, you know, if you proclaim the truth to the brothers and sisters of the church, if you present to the members of the church the truths, that you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Right? Because as we talked about last week, that's what pastors do, is they take the Word of God and they present it to the body of Christ. He says, present the truth of God's Word to the congregation. And now he says, command and teach these things. Now, obviously, he's talking about the same thing when he says these things, because he repeats the exact same phrase, which basically are the truths contained in the letter. right? But notice the emphasis in this section. He says, command and teach. Now, the word teach here, again, is from a Greek word that, 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 that we translate into teach actually literally means to cause to learn. It's to be the cause to learn or, or, or a teach so that people actually learn. An important part of the pastors laying before the church, uh, the Word of God is teaching. Pastors are to teach what the Word means and also teach the doctrines that are found in the text. And what we need to realize is that every text of Scripture, right? every text of Scripture contains truth and the doctrines of the faith that are to be exposited from the text. Pastors are not only just to expose those things so the congregation can see them, he is to help the church to understand them and to remember them and embrace them. And so Paul says, teach these things. But then he also says, command these things. Right? This is a word that's hard to get around. He said, command them. Now this word command in the Greek, again, conveys a military meaning. In fact, throughout 1 Timothy, we have seen Paul use military language. It's, he's very clear. You'll see it first through, through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. It's a very order-driven, military-style kind of language that he uses here. Words like charge or command. Paul intentionally uses that kind of a word here. Because not only is a pastor to exposit and teach the word, he is to command the members of the church to follow it, to obey it. You see, the call to repent and believe the gospel is a gospel command. The call to pursue holiness is a biblical command. The call to love one another as Christ loved the church is what? From Jesus Christ. It is a command from God expected to be obeyed. Pastors are to command these things. And theologically, what this teaches us, as we talked about before, is that there is a God-given authority invested in the office of the pastor and elder, an authority to proclaim the Word of God and call people to follow it, which means then by implication that we understand that the appropriate response to the authority and to the commandments of the Word of God is a willing submission to that authority. As Paul says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with, and, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The Bible makes it clear that, that, that pastors and elders are to lovingly wield the authority of the Word of God for spiritual care for that of the church corporately and also for the members of the church individually. And the members of the church are to willingly and joyfully submit to that authority. Now, please hear me. Because we start throwing words around like submission, people get really weird. Right? 
Because there's two important things that we need to understand. Number one, the scope of a pastor's authority is the Word of God. He is to proclaim the Word of God. He is to call people to follow it. And if you're in sin, He's to bring you to the Scriptures and show you the error and then call you to repent and believe. And that is it. A pastor cannot tell you how many children you were to have. A pastor cannot tell you whether you can move or not, or whether you should whether you should take a new job or not. Or a pastor cannot tell you who to marry. A pastor cannot tell you what to have for dinner, or what not to have for dinner. He can give counsel. He can point to the scriptures, but he doesn't have that kind of authority in your life. His authority is to proclaim the truth of the scriptures and to call you to obey what the text says. Again, that's why I personally continually call people to repent and believe the gospel. That is, a, that is a command and a call that I will give over and over again because that is the life-saving call. That is the gospel command that I am obligated to give. And that is the duty of the members of the church to hear the word being preached and to grow in their understanding of the word and obey it. And to obey it. Not because of what the pastor said so but because that's what the Word of God says. Which leads to the second thing that we need to understand. Not only are you to submit to the biblical authority, it is your personal responsibility to be like the Bereans and to examine and test everything that is taught from the pulpit. God calls no one to blindly follow any religious leader. I want you to hear me, and I'll say that all over again. In fact, if that's all you remember today, and you can write that down, God calls no one to blindly follow any pastor or preacher or religious leader or evangelist or whatever. In fact, a mark of a false prophet and a false teacher is someone who expects unquestioning obedience to what he says. In fact, I've heard false prosperity preachers who, when they're questioned about their doctrines and what they're teaching, they will misquote the Bible and they will, they will threatening say, touch not God's anointed, as if you don't have a right to question me or what I'm teaching. The thing is, if you ever encounter anyone who has that kind of an attitude, don't walk away, run. You have a responsibility to examine the teaching that comes from this pulpit against the Word of God. You have a responsibility to grow in your own understanding of the gospel to the point where you can begin to discern the truth from false teaching and doctrinal error. Brothers and sisters, these are the safeguards that God has put in place for you as members of the church, that the pastor has a clear, limited scope of authority in your life. And he's also given each one of you the responsibility and the ability to test what is being taught to make sure that it's true. Now, with that being said, if you belong to a church and a pastor operates within that scope of authority and you find that he is not a false teacher, then you are obligated as a member of the church to sit under the authoritative preaching of the Word and to learn it and to obey what the Word of God commands from Scripture. That's your obligation. This is how the church grows and remains healthy. Now, here's the thing. You may not like that. There's a lot of things in the Scriptures that, that people get ruffled about. And you may not like the theological foundation from which your pastor teaches from. That's okay. 
but you're still obligated to the church and to God to submit to the authority of the Word of God. Now, if these theological differences are just too big, the answer then is not to leave the church and then do your own thing by watching some people on YouTube and saying, yay, me and Jesus. The answer is to go find another church. And then when you become a member of that church, you must submit to that pastor's authority in your life because he is not there to tell you what to do. He is there to shepherd your soul. And every Christian, every person who calls himself in the name of Christ is to be under the authority and the spiritual care of a pastor somewhere. Otherwise, he or she is outside of God's design, will, and plan for their, for their life. Now understand, the struggle that many people have with when it comes to submission to biblical authority, is not anything new, right? In fact, it's as old as the church. It always has been. In fact, notice what Paul says. He says, let no one despise you for your youth. The word despise is translated from the Greek word that actually means to disregard. What Paul is saying is don't let the members of your church disregard you and your authority in their life as a pastor just because you're young. The thing is, is Timothy was a young pastor at the time. He was actually in his 30s, which for them was young. In that culture, they, they felt like being an elder meant that you had to be an old guy, right, with lots of experience. And there was a tendency by many people to look down on him. I don't listen to him. He's a young guy. I don't have to submit to him. He's just young. They had a tendency to look at him and dismiss him and disregard what he was teaching, but Paul reminds him that he was commissioned to this task by Paul, who himself was granted the authority by God. Timothy was ordained by God himself to be there, and he was to exercise the full authority of his office and to teach and to command the teachings and doctrines of the faith. And he was not to allow anyone to disregard his biblical authority to lead the church just because he was younger than them. Now, what we need to realize is if it weren't for his youth, people in the church would find something else to disregard him over. Well, don't you know that his mama was a Jew, right? And his daddy was a Greek, which means he's a half-breed. Why do we need to listen to this guy, right? I mean, I struggle to listen to him because he's just not as, man, he's a nice guy, but he's not as charismatic as the Apostle Paul. Come on, right? They would have found some reason to overlook him. They would have found some reason to not be in submission to his authority in their lives. And the truth is, people in every age have been doing the very same thing. There's a number of reasons that people will dismiss elders and authorities in the, elders and pastors and their authority in their lives. He's just too young. Oh, he's just too old. Right? He is just way too polished. You can just tell. He's just, he's just, he's just acting. Right? Man, you know what? He's just not polished enough. I mean, he just stumbles over his words and he reads from his notes. Man, you know what? I just don't trust him. He wears a suit all the time. And Man, how do you listen to a guy that didn't wear a tie in the pulpit? Come on. I mean, like, really? He's, he's just too skinny. You can't trust a guy that, that looks like that. I mean, he's not like eating but one meal a day. Right? He's just too fat. I mean, like, come on. Well, I just, I just really like that guy on the internet. I mean, he's really, he really brings the word, you know? Well, look at his kids. They're so... And they're just so weird and awkward and, you know, how do you trust a guy like that? He must not be really that much of a leader. Look how small his church is. I mean, if he was really a leader, his church would be bigger than that, right? Oh, you can't trust that guy. Look how big his church is, right? 
I mean, he's obviously in it for the money, right? I mean, that's why his church is so big. Right? You know what? He hasn't even written a book yet. How do we trust somebody who doesn't even have the authority to write a book in our day and age? We can't follow that guy. He's written like four books. I mean, that guy must be really full of himself, right? In fact, he's probably getting rich writing all them books. People in all ages have looked for any number of reasons to dismiss and disregard pastors who have the authority in their lives. And by the way, I want you to know this has caused so many pastors in their personal walk to feel unfit and unequipped and insecure about their job and their ability to do it. I actually have had once... At one point in my life, had an op- had someone who took every possible conceivable opportunity to remind me just how unlike I was to the pastor that this person really, really loved that pastored this church. You know, well, you know, that that pastor did this, and he did that, and yeah. He did this too, and he did that, and he was just this, and he was that. and Oh, I just love that pastor so much. Well, thank you very much for your support and encouragement. I really appreciate that. But Paul tells Timothy, don't allow people to disregard you because of, for any reason, especially because you're young. Instead, what you need to do is you need to lead by example. You are young. It's just the way things are. You might be short. That's the way things are. Could be bald. That's the way things are. Don't worry about the things that you cannot control. Focus on the things that you can. And instead, set the believers an example in speech and in conduct and in love and in faith and in purity. That's what he's saying. Control the things that you can control, which is the way that you act. This again sends us back to the pattern that we saw before. It's about faithful preaching of the word and living an example of a godly life. And Paul says in this text that Timothy is to lead by example, by his deeds. Or in other words, how he lives his life. Don't worry that people think that you're young. Just walk the walk and set the example. And the word that gets translated for example here in the Greek, actually, again, this is one of those areas where it's easy to overlook. The word example here is related to a word for a die, for striking coins, or making copies of, of coins. It's about making carbon copies. And what Paul is saying is you need to be the model in your own life of godliness that you're pursuing so people can follow your pattern. It's not just, hey, look at me, look, I'm a godly person. It is, hey, Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, pastors are to strive to be an example and a model, and, and to model the way in pursuing a life that of reverence to God. And Paul explains all that it encompasses. In fact, it encompasses, first of all, his words. He says, set an example in speech. Pastors are to lead my example in how they use their words with other people. Is he truthful? Is he gracious or is he vulgar and deriding? Those who lead the church are to set an example of how people ought to talk to one another, even in difficult circumstances. He also said to set an example in in his actions. Paul says, by his conduct. 
He is to treat people fairly. He's to live in a way that honors God and he's to be loving and gracious in how he deals with other people. Pastors are to lead in how they conduct themselves. And with that, there are just two quick things we need to mention. Number one, this is not a call to perfection, by the way. Okay? There's just almost a sense that just because someone's a pastor, that somehow they like don't even their feet don't even touch the ground when they walk. And I'm going to tell you, that is not how it is. Right? As I was reminded by another pastor friend of mine that I that, that, that being a shepherd means you're still a sheep among the sheep. Pastors are still prone to the same frustrations and limitations as everyone else. Being a pastor doesn't mean to be perfect. It means having a general disposition of growing towards godliness. Number two, the right, number two, right conduct and right speech for, for that matter does not mean a pastor must always be nice and sweet in everything that he says and does. This is a bad stereotype of, of pastors in the world. As Vodi Bakum says, many people, including many Christians, believe in the fabled 11th commandment, and that says, thou shalt always be nice. By the way, the Bible has nothing to say about thou shalt be nice. It doesn't say anything about Christians or pastors being nice at all costs. The fact is, there are times, there are times people need to be confronted. There are times that people need to be held accountable against their will. There are times that, that, that where the only way to actually get someone's attention is to raise your voice. There are times to be very pointed and direct. There, there are believers I know in in our church family and in my life, who at one point in their life, I've had to be very direct with. I've had to be very forceful with. I've had to be very clear with. Lovingly, yes, but was I nice? I wouldn't call it nice. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we need to be nice. God's godly behavior is not about being nice at all times. It's about honoring God and glorifying God. And so Paul says, set an example in, in words, actions, but then also in the attitudes of the heart. Love, faith, and purity. Pastors are absolutely to be loving, right? And, and use their words, you know, to the best of their ability, and their actions ought to be loving. And in fact, even the word here that Paul uses doesn't even give pastors too much of an excuse because he uses the big one, agape, Right? which is a love of the will, which is a love of a decision in spite of the circumstances. This is a sacrificial kind of love. It is a Christ-like kind of love. That is the kind of an example of love that a pastor is supposed to be. And there also to be an example of the faith that people ought to see in them faithfulness, living faithfully devoted to God. In fact, as we talked about, godliness is an outworking of an inward devotion and commitment to God. Pastors are to be an example of that faithfulness towards God in their words and in their deeds. And then he says there to be an example of purity. Now, if there is a point in this text that all pastors in America ought to come back to and reflect on over and over and over and over again, it is this one. How many preachers and pastors have we heard about that made shipwreck of their faith and become unqualified for the ministry because of moral failings? Recently, the pastor of the Hillsong Church was found to be in horrific moral failure. Another pastor, and I can't remember, I couldn't, I can't remember his name, um, but he was 
He pastored a church back east somewhere where he was having an affair with a wife of a famous baseball player. Or the biggest shocker, the apologist Ravi Zacharias. I mean, this is a man that I've listened to for years, a man who has greatly influenced my way of thinking about apologetics. He, after he died, it was found out that he had multiple, you know, moral indiscretions. How does this happen? They lost sight of being the, the example of purity for the, the church. Ministers of the Word diligently guard their hearts and walk in purity, and they must do so in a world that continues to throw temptation at them at every possible conceivable angle. By the way, I don't know about you, but if you need a reason to praise God, praise God that you did not grow up in the age that we live in today with ubiquitous technology in your pocket. I think it's harder to be a kid now than it ever has been. By the way, not to mention, I was telling one of the, one of the other coaches, praise the Lord that we didn't have this technology when I was a kid. Otherwise, there'd be lots of videos of me doing stupid stuff, right? Paul is saying that Timothy needs to set an example for the church in his words, his actions, and his attitudes of his heart, which simply means he is to let his entire life be the example for believers that are under his care. And again, that takes us back to pursuing godliness. It's about the entirety of our lives, not just part of your life over here, right? It's not just about how you act at church. It's not just about how you act in front of the church members. It's about your entire life in every possible respect. Now, before we move on, there's one last thing you need to notice about what Paul says here. He says, set the believers an example. This right here is if the, if the Christians in our country would actually fully understand and embrace this, it would dramatically improve our theology of the church. Because notice he says, set the believers, set the believers an example. The believers. You see, that's, that is who the, the pastors are primarily responsible to minister to, believers. And hear me on this. If an unbeliever was to walk in the door here, I believe he should hear a sermon that absolutely proclaims the gospel. He should hear the gospel and a call to repent and believe the gospel. And I, as a pastor, should do everything in my power to love them and help them to receive Christ. But understand, my primary reason for being here this morning is for Him. And the primary reason we are all gathered together is to worship Him. We are the believers who are gathered together in worship of the living God. And the way that I serve God as a pastor, as we talked about last week, is to lay out for the believers of the church the Word of God. And to live, to the best of my ability, as an example for those same believers. And the reason why this is important is because a pastor's primary ministry is the saints, the believers, the members of the church, not everyone else. It's not the pastor's job to live a godly life so that other people will approve of him. It is not the pastor's job to set an example so that non-believers will say, wow, look how nice he is. Gosh, look how loving he is. Look how compassionate he is. A pastor's job is to model the way for the believers to follow. So they themselves will pursue godliness in their own lives. A pastor must lead by example. 
And a pastor must also lead through the ministry of the Word of God. Notice Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and exhortation and teaching. Or in other words, devote yourself to the ministry of the Word of God. And we've talked about this before. The primary responsibility of of pastors and elders is that, the ministry of God's Word to the congregation. This is why they're supposed to be allowed to have time to study and continually be trained up in the Word of God. And that's why we have said before, we need deacons and other leaders to help with the practical needs of the church. Like like yesterday, one of our deacons, Mike and and Matt and Aaron, who run the, the food ministry here, they spent yesterday distributing food to the community with the help of some of the kids from our youth group and a bunch of the kids from our, our football team. This right here was a big undertaking. I mean, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of pounds of food. And it was helpful to me as the pastor that I didn't have to lead that or coordinate that or organize that because I have to prepare for the ministry of the Word. Sunday comes around every week. I don't know if you realize that or not, right? Every week, Sunday comes back around. The ministry of the Word is the greatest duty of the pastor, and he must do so and do the work that's necessary to feed the congregation the Word of God. And the way he's to do that, Paul outlines here, it is through the public reading of the Scripture. By the way, that's why we read the text. That's why we stop, right? And I say, this is the Word of the Lord. We read the words of the text. Secondly, it's through exhortation or the preaching or the proclamation of the Word of God. And third, through teaching, the teaching of the truths of the Scripture and the doctrines that are found in that Scripture, the doctrines of our faith. That is what a pastor is to do. And Paul says to devote yourself to this. This word devote in the Greek means to give full attention to. Paul is telling him that he needs to focus his attention on his duty ministering the Word of God, that he is to commit himself completely to it. Again, we've covered that before in the reason why there are deacons and the reason why there are elders in the church. But but pastors are to devote themselves because that's what they're called to. In fact, that's what they were gifted for. In fact, notice in verse 14, he says, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy, which is the council of elders, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Paul not only says, devote yourself to the work, but he says also not to neglect this God-given gift. You see, Timothy is not a pastor because he woke up some one morning and goes, You know what? <sighs> pastoral ministry jobs are trending right now. I think I should go into pastoral ministry. He didn't just wake up and select. That's, I think that's the field I, I really want to go into. No, he became a pastor because that's what God had called him to and gifted him to. This right here is a reaffirmation of the work, I mean, or the truth that we talked about in chapter 1, that those who are to be elders and pastors in the church are to be called and gifted by God for that purpose. It must be God who actually initiates it. It must be God who calls them. It must be God who gives them the ability to lead a congregation. Because let me tell you, brothers and sisters, nobody naturally on their own has the ability to do that for any length of time. Secondly, the calling and the gifting must must not simply be a subjective feeling that a person has, but it must be something that is confirmed by the leaders of the church. That's what we see here. That's the prophetic nature of what they're talking, what Paul's talking about here. They saw in Timothy the truth that he has been gifted this way, and they are publicly declaring that. 
In 1 Timothy 1.18, it says, I char- this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophetic prop- I mean, with, 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 in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flames the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. What we see in this letter is a repeated emphasis that not only was Timothy called by God to minister the Word of God, and not only to be supernaturally gifted for the task, this gifting and calling was to be evident in his life, and the elders of the church needed to be able to see that and testify publicly about that fact that he was indeed set apart for the work. And, and this, is imp- this is a really important detail, by the way, because there are a lot of people right, who feel called into ministry. A lot of people who actually end up being unqualified for, for being an elder say that they feel called into ministry. Right? This is why it must be verified by the local church. You see, it has to be more than a feeling. It has to be something that is evident in the world around them. And which leads to the third thing is those who are called and are gifted and are verified are to be ordained by the leaders of a local church. Notice Paul says, do not neglect the gift you have that was, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And again, 2 Timothy 1.6, For this reason I remind you to fan into flames the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. The laying on of hands is a reference to Timothy's ordination service. That's why we lay hands on people when we ordain them. He was ordained by the elders of the church for pastoral ministry, and this reminds us, as we talked about before, that the only God-given institution for ordaining elders and pastors is the local church. Seminaries are useful for education, but they can't ordain pastors. Bible colleges are useful for, for growing people in their faith and even helping people get prepared for ministry, but they can't ordain pastors or the so-called online ordination services that anybody can basically go online, pay 18 bucks, and boom, you're ordained minister. All pastors must be called and gifted by God and call, and that calling is to be verified by the church and they're to be ordained by the leaders of the church. And then Paul says, I want you to notice, do not neglect the gift you have. The reason why Paul says this is because spiritual gifts, whether you want to believe it or not, can be neglected. They can become weak through neglect. Spiritual gifts must be cultivated and they must be developed. Like developing muscles through physical exercise, spiritual gifts must be, must be used and cultivated, whether it's preaching or teaching or serving or singing or hospitality or ministries of service. These gifts must be cultivated, otherwise we lose them. These spiritual gifts can atrophy like muscles. And what Paul is saying, in a sense, is use it or lose it which should remind us then of the parable of the talents. Jesus told the parable about the rich man who was going on a long journey and he gave to some of his, some of his servants several uh, pieces of gold and he told them to basically steward them and take care of them. And two of the servants were good and faithful. They invested these, this gold and it grew, right? And, and it increased and Jesus said, what? Well done, right? These are the words we're looking forward in heaven to, right? Is well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. 
But then Jesus in this parable also talks about right, the unfaithful servant who didn't, right? And what he realizes in this parable, he's talking about gold, but it can be applied to any number of areas of our life that God's entrusted to us, especially our spiritual gifts. We're to use them and cultivate them and grow them. But if we neglect them, they'll be taken away. The master said to the servant who buried one of the buried his gold and who refused to invest it, he said, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he will he has will be taken away. Paul is telling Timothy not to neglect the gift of leadership and teaching. Instead, he is he needs to apply these gifts and grow these gifts and cultivate them. And then Paul says to Timothy, how is to cultivate them? He says, practice these things. Immerse yourself so that you may, so all may see progress. And the word that was used here in the ESV that we translate as practice comes from the Greek that means to care for or attend to or be diligent or even ponder or study. And the idea that Paul is communicating here is that Timothy needs to apply his energy studying and practicing and exercising the gift of teaching and leadership. This again should bring images that we've seen in, in previous uh, texts of, of athletes who are, are training themselves for competition. This is what Paul is driving at when he says, practice these things. But notice he also says, immerse yourself in them. And this is a really kind of perplexing expression because it can mean absorb, but the root word, the root verb here in Greek has nothing to do with absorption or being immersed. It actually is the root verb for being or becoming. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is to immerse himself in the gifts that God has given him to the point that it may become part of him. That it becomes part of his character. They become part of his identity. You see, pastoral ministry is not just simply a job that you do for 40 hours a week and you go home and you forget about it. It's who you are. Being a pastor isn't simply what he does. It's who he is to the very core. He is a servant of the living God in his actions, in his words, and his attitudes of his heart. And notice that he, as he says, practice these things, preaching the word and growing in godliness. Paul says, so that they may see your progress. Timothy's growth in spiritual gifts as a pastor ought to be the evidence, ought to be the evidence of his faith to the congregation. Those whom he ministered ought to see in him visible progress in how he handles the word of God and also as a living example to the congregation. Timothy's life and work ought to bear fruit to the point where people will see it as he continues to grow towards maturity and he leads the congregation because Jesus said what? You will know them by what? By their fruit. Now, all of this, all of those details, all this talk about fruit and bearing fruit and life and ministry, all this is pointing towards what Paul is saying next. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Again, deeds and devotions. Persist in this, for by so de doing, you will save both yourself and the hearers. Again, John Piper says that this text 
is about the extraordinary seriousness of pastoral ministry. And he points out that this verse has three commandments to it. This verse has three commandments. These commands that Paul gives to Timothy is, number one, he is to keep a close watch on himself or his life or his deeds. He's to pay close attention to his behavior and the pursuit of godliness. Number two, he's to keep a watch over his teaching, the doctrines that he teaches. He is to to be diligent to study and to make sure that he is within the bounds of Christian orthodoxy and make sure that he is teaching the truth and everything he teaches is from the Scriptures. And then number three, he is to persist in this or keep on watching these things. This is a continual, ongoing process for the rest of his life that he keeps his eyes focused on the life that he's living and the the ministry of the Word that he uses to feed other people. Those are the commands of the text. And those commands are followed by two promises. If he does these things, he will save himself... And then he will also, by doing that, save his hearers, which brings us back to where we started then. If we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, then why does Paul tell Timothy that by, and by implication pastors, that they will be saved by keeping watch over their life and their teaching? Again, I find the words of, of John Piper from this article in 1987, actually, what he says very helpful here. He says, How can we state the teaching of this verse in one sentence? And he said, I would put it like this. A pastor's unflagging moral vigilance over his life and unwavering theological vigilance over his doctrine are the means of grace appointed by God for his own salvation and the salvation of other people. In other words, Paul, uh, John Piper says that pastors keeping watch over their life and doctrine mean, is a means of grace that God is using, that God has appointed for the pastor's own salvation and salvation of others. And John Piper continues to say, and he goes, you can see why I would say the theme of this verse is extraordinary seriousness of pastoral ministry. The eternal salvation of a pastor and his people is at stake in the holiness of his life and the truthfulness of his teaching. If a pastor grows lax in his attention to personal holiness or carelessness in his his teaching, the whole counsel of God, he will very likely pay with his life and make many of his people with take many of his people with him to hell. Sobering Why? Because if he doesn't keep watch on these things, what he does is he proves that he was a false teacher all along. That's what Paul's been communicating throughout this entire letter. It's about false teaching and false teachers and how dangerous they are. And the reason why they're dangerous is because the consequences of false teachers and their false teachings are catastrophic and eternal. Again, John Piper goes on and says, this is not a contradiction of the great truths of salvation by grace through faith taught in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. And he quotes it and says, by grace you were saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not, not of works, lest any man should boast. We have said and we, we have said and we will say that we 
will be saved in the last day by grace through faith, and it will be the gift of God, free and undeserved from beginning to end. He then says, 1 Timothy 4.16 is not a contradiction of that. Rather, it is a confirmation of the very next verse, Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This, by the way, is always the verse that people tend to leave out when they quote Ephesians chapter 2. They always stop at 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works so no one may boast. For, because, in light of that, because of that, we are His workmanship, His masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for, right, for a purpose, and that purpose is good works which God has prepared in eternity past beforehand that we should walk in them. We should live in them. We should grow in them. We should bear fruit in them. John Piper again says, When a pastor takes heed of himself and his teaching and thus walks in the good works prepared beforehand for him, he proves himself to be the workmanship of God and a new creature in Christ. But when a pastor grows lax in his personal holiness and forsakes the apostolic doctrines that he... he shows that he is not the true workmanship of God and that he is not a new creature in Christ and his faith is in vain like that of Hymenaeus and Alexander, which is identified in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1, verse 20, and Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, and Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8, verse 21, and all of the wolves in pastor's clothing that Paul and Jesus warn about in Acts chapter 20, verse 30, and Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. You see what Paul is saying here through this verse, is if you keep your watch over your life and over your ministry, if you practice the things, these things, and devote yourself to the preaching of the truth and the training and godliness, if you pay heed to your doctrines and your deeds, you will prove by them that you are truly regenerate and you have been justified by faith and you will prove that you have indeed been called to the ministry and you have indeed been gifted by God and as such, you will be an instrument in the hand of God to bring the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ to all those who are in your care. That's the point of what Paul is saying. But if on the other hand, you don't do these things, you will prove that you are one of the many false teachers who have gone before you, who lead people astray, and as such, rightly deserve to be condemned to hell because you're leading other people to hell through the doctrines of demons. And see, Paul is reminding Timothy of the overwhelming responsibility of pastoral ministry. Paul says that anyone who aspires to the office of, of elder desires a noble thing, but he, then he also warns that pastoral ministry is a very dangerous place to be for those who are unqualified and uncalled. Pastoral ministry is a call to serious, continual reflection on one's teaching and doctrine and life and conduct. And he says, and what he says is, he does, he is to be continually examined. 
and that pastors are to doggedly pursue godliness and holiness, and they're they're to doggedly to seek to put to death the sins in his life. Hence the t-shirt that Matt wore today where John Owen says, be killing sin or it be killing you. He's to demonstrate in his words and his actions and his attitudes that he indeed is committed to working and living in such a way to continually point the entire congregation always back to Christ. And believe me, that is a tall order to fill. That's why, the, the James, that's why James, the brother of Jesus himself, says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged to, to greater strictness. That's why Paul says in Hebrews 13, 17, Obey the leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. God, because God is going to hold them accountable for what they teach and how they live. That's the bottom line truth of this text. Paul reminds Timothy of the seriousness of pastoral ministry because as we've seen in this letter, the consequences of false teaching are devastating. False teaching leads individuals to hell. It destroys churches and communities and families. The Ephesian church had allowed unqualified men to become elders and they began to teach false doctrines and the members of the church began to live ungodly in their lives and behavioral problems were all over the place and the entire church was in danger of hellfire. That's why Paul left Timothy in charge to set things right. Now, what are our takeaways with a text like this? I mean, this text obviously is, is mainly about pastoral ministry and the qualifications of pastors. I mean, obviously, like I said, this is about you being spectators and watching me squirm under the weight of what, of what this is teaching. But what do you take away from this? What, is it, what do you as a church take away from this? Well, there's actually quite a bit. And there, there are basically three major things I want, I want to point you to. Number one, we all need to recognize the seriousness of pastoral ministry. It's a high calling with a clear set of qualifications and, and clear consequences for failure. And by the way, it's perhaps one of the hardest and most important jobs in the world. It's the most joyful job in my life, but it's the very hardest thing I've ever done. I'm just, I'm just gonna tell you, I'm just gonna be honest. There are, there are days where like, I just wonder like, how in the world am I gonna get through the next 24 hours because of just the demands, right? And I'm not saying that for you to feel sorry for me. I'm just saying that's just the truth. It is a serious vocation, shepherding the souls of those that God has entrusted to him and ultimately being accountable to God for what he does. I mean, there's, you know, the text, you know, in Matthew where Jesus said, away from me, I never knew you, is a text that weighs heavy on my heart. But did we do this in your name and that in your name? I do not want to stand by anybody's casket in this room and wonder, did I not do enough to help you be pointed to Christ and that you stand in His presence? Number two, pray for your pastor. Right? And I don't care what church you end up at. I don't care if you're like, hey, you know what? He just preaches way too much Bible. I need something a little softer. Fine. Right? Then go to another church, be under another pastor, and pray for him. Right? Because he is doing the job that he is 
that is beyond his natural ability and aptitude to do. He is dependent upon God's supernatural gifts and strength to do so. And let's just be frank. At times, it can be so demanding and it can be a very thankless job because everybody, including those who, who are not even in the church and those who are not even believers, have expectations of how pastors are to live and behave and act and do things. So pray for your pastor. And the third thing, it's a new word that I made up, okay? Concept's not new. Be shepherdable. You see, in, in football, we remind our players, one of our expectations of them for us to help them become successful is to be coachable, that they're teachable. We remind them that we are there to help them to grow and be better. We're not there to make their lives harder and make them uncomfortable. Even when we get after them, even when we have to be stern and raise our voices, even when we have to make them run more, right? we're not doing that just because we're just trying to be jerks. We're doing that because we're trying to help them to grow enough to where they succeed at what they're doing. That's why we say the things that we do. That's why we try to coach them up, because we want every player to be as successful as they possibly can be. In order for, for us to do that, they need to have an attitude of, I'm willing to be coachable. I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to take my personal feelings and set them aside and hear what you're saying. I'm willing to take the criticism. I'm willing to take the advice. I'm willing to allow you to speak in my life. That's the idea of being coachable. Well, it's the same, by the same token, you can make your pastor's life a little bit easier by being shepherdable. Understanding that the things that your pastor says to you is not aimed at making you feel guilty. Is it aimed at helping you grow in your relationship with Christ? That is what, that's what my aim is and it's what every pastor's aim should be, is to help you to walk closer every single day in your relationship with Christ. It's not about telling you what to do. It's about pointing you to Jesus continually. It's about helping you follow Him where he's calling you to go. And the way that you can be shepherdable is number one, consistently sit under the preaching of the word of God. Consistently hearing the word being preached. It is the means that God is using to speak into your life. Every Sunday morning, what you're getting in the time that we spend together is hours and hours and hours of preparation and time in the Word and prayer and, and thinking about, about you guys and asking the Lord, what is it they need to know? Pouring that in so that you receive that. It's about sitting under the consistent preaching of the Word of God. Number two, submitting to biblical authority invested in the pastor as he calls you to repent and believe the gospel and obey the commands. And then number three is grow in your spiritual disciplines in time in, in, in the basic things. One of the things that we tell kids to be coachable is you got to drink water all the time. Got to be hydrated. You got to eat right. You got to get rest. You got to take care of your body. Those are the basic things you have to do. It's the same here. There are spiritual basic disciplines that everyone needs to be engaged in. Be in the word. Be in prayer. Be in service to one another. Be in fellowship, loving one another, giving, right? pursuing God, worship. Be shepherdable. Maybe I'll get a chance to coin that term someday, right? 
That being said, as we walk together through these nuances and details in, in the church, I want you to realize that God is working in us and through us to build in us a corporate understanding of the church, that we can become the church that He has called all of us to be. That it's not just the pastor doing something, that we together are corporately worshiping God in a way that glorifies Him, that grows you in your relationship with Him, and then that moves you forward out into the world to where then you then are leading by your own example those others out there who need to hear the Word of Christ that you learn from here what to say and how to live out there so that they can see God and glorify Him. Remember, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill where it's not to be hidden. We are supposed to glorify God in all of our deeds. We are supposed to glorify God in a way that people see it and worship Him. Let us grow to be that church. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.